couple of um, announcements for next week, or just for in general. We're not meeting next Wednesday night for spring break. We're going to give the workers a night to travel and hang out with family, and y'all are encouraged to do the same. Be intentional about engaging somebody or engaging family or something. And um, so we'll not be meeting next Wednesday night. And I'll put that in the bulletin to you as a reminder. The, the Wednesday night after that, we're actually going to be connecting to the neighborhoods that are surrounding GHS for our mobile worship. Mobile worship this month on the 30th, which is the Sunday after Easter, is at Greenville High, not at Greenville Christian School, Greenville High School. So we're trying to be intentional about moving, moving around to different places. So that's the 30th. The 23rd, I think, is um, a Sunday. That's Easter Sunday. Okay. This next Sunday is... Um, this next Sunday is going to be the last Sunday of the Dibs series, and this is going to be the Sunday where Dibs, Dibs series and Covenant, these couple sermons that we had on Covenant, collide. So you'll understand it's God's sovereignty that worked out that way because I'm not that organized. I couldn't, have, I couldn't have arranged that. But just the way they come together, you'll appreciate that God had his hands all over it. So that's next Sunday. The Sunday after that on Easter uh, will be in First Peter the Sunday after that, on the 30th, the first Sunday of, uh, or excuse me, our mobile worship at Greenville High will be back in John chapter 13. And I'll, I'll let everybody know this too. John 13 through 16, especially 14, 15, 16, is like a sea of red. It's basically Christ's last hours before he went to the cross. And he's like, okay. I'm just going to kind of just dump all this red truth on you, red letter truth on you, and let you sort it all out. And in fact, I'm not going to let you sort it all out. He even tells you the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to re- help you remember all these things, and he's going to help you sort it all out. So chapters 14 through 16 especially, but even 13 to some degree, are going to be real worshipers chapters. They're not consumer chapters. So we're going to have a long journey in some rich truth that are really going to be savory for the worshiper. The consumer is going to be like, man, this doesn't really help me with my marriage or it doesn't help me with my money. You know, see, I always talk funny when I'm talking about people that are not really being real bright because they're easy to make them look bad. Christy got on me last week. She said, why do you always talk different whenever you're talking about somebody that you want to? That's a straw man, baby. That's why I'm building a straw man so I can knock him down. And he's easier to knock down if he talks funny, so. Just know that if I'm ever talking funny, that's all I'm doing. I'm building a small straw, man. I can knock him down. And uh, no, actually, the um, I don't even know where I was going with that. The <laughs> 14 through 16 are going to be worshipers' chapters. And um, it's going to be a cool journey together. It's going to be hard preaching in terms of un- unfolding the truth and hard gnawing as a people. It's going to be hard worship. We're really going to have to just chew on, chew on it together. But it'll be a neat journey. John chapter 17 is one of my favorite chapters apart from Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 in the Bible. John 17 is going to be, man, it's going to be rich. And it's all going to be rich. Some of the times where we've had little red seas or a a chapter that I'm overwhelmed with and intimidated by, it's in the journey of it that the Lord just unpacks these things that people typically don't preach on. And that you, once you've moved through it, you go, I'm so glad we're moving verse by verse. And we're trusting your sovereignty because he gives us these treasures that we wouldn't even know were really there. So I anticipate John chapter, um, chapters 13 through 16 are going to be a lot like that. Uh, since we had a few folks come in, just a two-second announcement. We're not meeting next Wednesday for spring break. The Wednesday after that is the Wednesday before mobile worship. And since we've got daylight now, we're going to visit the neighborhoods around GHS because the last Sunday of the month, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to be at Greenville High for mobile worship. Okay? Let me pray, and we'll climb into John chapter... Excuse me, John. See, I'm excited about John. We're going to climb back into uh, Genesis in, um, in chapter 15. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we turn this time over to you. We uh, just celebrate and rejoice at the thought that there's no mundane Wednesday night, no routine hour when we're engaging you in your word and when we're feasting on truth and we're laying our lives bare and when we're tuned in and not just getting a check in the block and getting our church on. 
Lord, I pray that you'll guard me from that, that you'll guard this people from that, that we will see ourselves as listening to you and hearing your very words as we read the Scripture. And I pray that you'll guard me, that I'll speak truthfully and unpacking and and exposing these um, truths and that we together can walk in these truths. Uh, We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me give a little bit of intro before we jump into Genesis chapter 15. Look in Genesis chapter 12. This is just a little bit of background for the developing covenant that we're looking at in Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses are pretty key. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So that. I love so that. I circle so that's when I see them. Because so that's matter. Okay, I'm going to read that whole thing again and then tune in to the so that. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Go, Abram, to a land I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So in essence, he's saying, I'm telling you to go somewhere. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you will then be a what? A blessing to who? No. Wait, it, there will be a certain amount of blessing in that. But to, to what? To the nations. Right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to go somewhere. I'm going to bless you in the, in the faithful journey that you're going on so that you will be a blessing then to others. Now, keep your finger in Genesis and turn over to 1 Peter. And you'll understand why this is introductory and why this just kind of should make us swallow hard of where we're going tonight. Abram is to be made into a nation so that Abram will bless the nations. Now look at this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is a letter that's written to believers, so we could almost climb into it. You have to be very careful when I say this, because it's not going to be true in every case. But to some extent, this letter is written to us as believers. Contextually, that's why I'm saying we want to be careful. But in in many ways, if you're going to err, err that direction and say, this is our letter. And imagine God writing to us through human hands and saying, you are a chosen race, cross point, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that. You could put a so in front of that. So is probably not there in the original language, but contextually it could be. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, Abram, when you were hanging out over there in Ur, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy hanging out in Ur, but now you've received mercy. This is our story. What I want to do introductory-wise before we climb into Genesis chapter 15 is just to take a brief look at Genesis chapter 12 and go, oh yeah, they're talking about Abram. Abram, you go to this place I will show you. I will, make a, I will bless you and you'll be a blessing to the nations. But then you peek over here at 1 Peter chapter 2 and you go, that's the same thing he's done with us. I'm going to make of you a new people, a royal priesthood, a nation of new believers under a new covenant. And I'm going to do that, to, I'm going to bless you in that, but that's not the terminal event. I'm blessing you so that you will then be a blessing to the nations. Th- that's the gospel right there. So this Genesis 12 passage is not some old tired story that really has nothing to do with it. It's our story. Okay? And here in Genesis 15, where we're going tonight, is where this thing is developed even further. So turn over to Genesis chapter 15. We're made into a nation. We once were not a people, but we are made for his glory as a light to the nations. <clears throat> Before I read chapter 15, I'm going to read it all together and then we're going to kind of low crawl, kind of like we do on Wednesday nights. But I want you to kind of see it break down in two chunks. 
The first chunk is verses 1 through 5. And then there's a little commentary in verse 6. It's like a narrator's commentary. Realize this book is written by a narrator. Likely Moses. Moses with, we believe it's Moses. Maybe with some editor comments here and there. The fact that Moses said at one point in, in I'm trying to remember, it, was, it may have been in Deuteronomy or Exodus, that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. That kind of disqualify him if he wrote that, you know. So there's probably some editors in there that, that inspired edit, editors that added some things. But we believe that Moses wrote this, and this narrator adds a commentary note in verse 6. The second chunk is verses 7 through 21. The first chunk is a night vision pertaining to Adam's, or excuse me, Abram's seed. The second chunk is, verses 7 through 21, is a deep sleep at sundown pertaining to the land. So the first chunk has to do with seed. The second chunk has to do with land. The first chunk is at night in a vision. The second chunk is at sundown in a deep sleep. With verse 6 kind of breaking it up. Now I'm also going to show you a pattern before I read it. So you can kind of look for it. It's not chiastic. Remember I told you about chiasms that shape kind of like a pyramid that are setting off something important at the top. But th- these early writers used other tools too. And this one, I don't know that it has a name. It's just a pattern. Let me show it to you. Just imagine these, these A, B, C setups where there's A, B, C, and then A prime, B prime, C prime. Okay, there's two sections. I just told you what the two sections are. Now, here's the first section, A, B, and C. A is the Lord makes a promise to Abraham using an I am statement. We're going to look at these. B, Abraham questions the Lord using Master Lord, which is a rare reference. Third, or the the C, the Lord reassures Abraham by symbolic acts. And in this case, it's look up at the stars. Does kind of what your seed's going to be like in terms of number. That's the A, that's the B, that's the C. Now here's the second chunk. The A is, the the A prime, the Lord makes a promise to Abraham using an I am statement. The B prime, Abraham questions the Lord using Master Lord. Identical so far. And then the C prime, the Lord reassures Abraham by a symbolic act, and that's the vision of the torch and the fire pot, or the fire pot and the smoke pot, or whatever, moving through the pieces that are halved. Okay, so there's, there's rhyme and reason to this layout. And I think part of the reason these guys did this in these early writings is because not everybody walked around with Torah in their hands, because it's like scrolls, you know, <laughs> You didn't, you didn't have a hip pocket version of that. You didn't have your net Bible. You couldn't pull up Bible Gateway. So that's the good way. Mnemonics and things like that were good ways to remember the, the Scripture and remember how it unfolded. So if you want to memorize this chapter, that's the way you can break it down right there. You could do it. I promise you, you could do it. Okay, now let's climb in. <coughs> chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven." Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, 
You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt, Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, <clears throat> let's start back at verse 1. After these things. Okay, what are the things? A little quiz on the last couple chapters. After what things? Huh? Some serious king booty whipping, man. Uh, undercover, recon, Ricky recon, sneaking off, hooking and jabbing, locating, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver. There it was, boy. <laughs> oh, man. Hooking and jabbing, taking out the kings at midnight, undercover. What happened before that? Yeah, before that. Okay, before that. Adam made, Adam and Eve, yeah. You know, God said, let there be light. <laughs> right, I'm thinking about the Egypt foray. Right, where he's like, oh, man, I'm hungry, and there's no food here, so let's go off to Egypt. Oh, by the way, tell them you're my sister. You know, that, all that. After all those things, this happens. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, what do you think Abram's afraid of? Why would God say fear not? Yeah, I'm not sure that'd be fear. That'd be concern. Yeah, from the kings, man. He was hooking and jabbing midnight. You know, those guys, there's lots of those guys. And they can be sneaky too. And he's saying, man, listen, you don't have to be afraid. He says, I am your shield. Now, here's something to think about. I, I, uh, I'll just offer this as, as anecdotal to some extent. In, uh, in my short time in the Marine Corps, <laughs> I did things that I look back, I mean, like jumping out of planes. I, that's not a Marine Corps thing, but that was through an Army jump school. Uh, jumping out of helicopters on belay, uh, swimming through surf zones in the middle of the night, all these kind of things, being in, in, a, in, in harm's way in, in Somalia, all these kind of things where I really learned a lot about fear. And what I realized is some of you might see the movies and you, you see this steely-eyed killer and you think, man, that guy's really not afraid. I guarantee they're afraid. I don't know a time where I ever did any of those kind of things where I wasn't afraid. But there was a trust that was involved that outweighed the fear in every case. And I either trusted my canopy as I'm knees in the breeze, flying from a plane to the ground, or I trusted in my, my harness and my ropes as I'm on belay or on rappel out of a helicopter, or I trusted in my weapon system that I'm behind, or I trusted in some other thing outside of me. And basically what he's saying right here is, don't fear, trust in me. I'm your shield. I'm the ultimate weapon system. I'm the ultimate fire team. I'm the ultimate canopy and the ultimate rope system. And God can be trusted over any fear. So trust is not necessarily a complete void of fear. It's just this overwhelming confidence that what I'm trusting in is greater than that fear. So if you ever think, man, I'm afraid, so this, this must not be God, and you're rendered completely inactive and immobile, then that, that is fear that's winning. That's, that's, I would say, disobedient fear. But if you're afraid, you feel like, man, I feel like the Lord's calling me to something, but I'm really afraid, but I'm going to press on. Man, that's, that's just called obedience. <laughs> that's just the nature of the journey. I don't know that there is that. Seldom a Sunday goes by where I'm not afraid about preaching. Seldom a Wednesday goes by that I'm not afraid about teaching. Because you're always putting yourself out there. And you can always look like a knucklehead. I mean, you come less and less concerned about that over time. You just get used to it. <laughs> but that's all part of it. 
So I encourage you, if you ever feel like fear is, um, you know, that if you have fear, you must not be faithful. I think the faithful have fear, but they trust in the God over the fear, ultimately. So I encourage you to consider that. God says, I am your shield. Now, I want to just offer to you that I am statements are important. They're, we're going to look at another I am statement in here, and I don't know if I've made this note about it elsewhere, but I'll bring it up here. Whenever Moses, whenever God called uh, Moses to go to Israel and tell them, I'm going to lead you out, lead you out of, of, of Egypt, he said, well, who shall I say sent me? And he said, well, you tell him I am that I am sent you. And that picture of God being the I am is an important statement. And Jesus used that statement frequently. Some of, our, some of the times where Jesus used that, that reference to his being I am are cloaked in translation. For example, where Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee and he's high step in the high seas at midnight and it's, you know, high winds and high waves and, you know, the disciples are all rocking around and, and they look out and they see Jesus walking step, high step in the high seas and they think it's an apparition and they're scared to death. The King James says they were sore afraid. <laughs> That's scared. That's flat scared, being sore afraid. And he doesn't say, hey, guys, it's just me. It's okay. I'm going to come climb in the boat. He says, I am, which I think is a very clear demonstration that you, don't be amazed. It's God walking on the water. I mean, it, it, when, when, whenever they come to, to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and they ask him, you know, where is he? He says, I am. And what do they do? You remember? They fall down, man. They're falling down all over the place. because There's power in this God and in his statement. This is who I am. Jesus was pure godness. Now, he's fully man, but he's fully God. And he is God the Son, and make no mistake about that. And he, he refers to himself as I am also. So seeing the Father call himself I am, or refer to it even early on, an I am statement should be something that kind of tunes you in. Hmm, that's important. That matters. God says that he is his shield, and the Hebrew there is magan, as God is the one who delivered in the previous chapter, where Mel- Melchizedek shows up and blesses him, look over at verse or chapter fourteen, verse twenty. Melchizedek shows up, and he's the member of the high priest and king of Salem. He comes out and he he says, "Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand." That word there, "delivered" in Hebrew, is migan. Their relatives; those words, they're related. And he says, this is basically God is his shield, Magan, as God is the one who delivered you, Megan. Now, I want to kind of take you somewhere on a little short journey that's kind of a preview for Easter. Keep your finger in Genesis and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> you can take a brief look at the passage in Hebrews. We can't really, this is commentary on Abram's life, so it's appropriate for us to take some peeks over here at Hebrews. But I'm going to ask a question after I read this passage. So I want you to listen to what it says about Abram. Commentary from the writer of Hebrews. He says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, she considered him faithful, or since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, old rascal, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now listen to this verse. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Now, here's my question. Did Abraham get his reward? What did that verse just say? He didn't, he didn't walk in this land as it's his own land. He didn't park his car in his driveway. He didn't sit at the dining room table necessarily. I mean, he kind of camped out there, but he didn't move into the mansion of the promised land. 
He didn't own it. I mean, it wasn't all his. He didn't experience some of these promises and some of these rewards, but he lived for them. Now, here's the question. In this journey that Abram had with the Lord, with this God Most High that he calls him, what was Abram's real, real reward? You've got to think about it. It's so obvious it's going to knock you down. Like when it, Jesus said, I am. People fell down in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the Lord himself. <laughs> the real reward was the Lord himself. It's like going into a battle and winning this shield. You have like this supernatural shield and you go into this battle and you kick the enemies behind and then you realize that this shield is the real treasure. It's not the booty kicking. <laughs> and it's not even the spoils of war. It's the shield. And God's saying, I'm your shield. I'm your treasure. So the treasure itself is not the deliverance. The treasure itself is the shield. Now that's a radical thinking for us because we're, so, so we're, we're consumers and don't even know it. <laughs> we're in this thing, many of us, for the non-hell program. I just don't want to go to hell. <laughs> Pray this prayer, walk this aisle, man. I, all right, in Jesus' name, boy, I'm, I got it on. I just don't want to go to hell. <laughs> right? But God is the treasure, not non-hell. <laughs> Think about it. I'm going to share, share one passage with you, and this is, this is just a little teaser. Just a little teaser. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 21. For... Easter. Deuteronomy 10, verse 21. Keep your eye on that verse as I read, beginning in verse 12. Listen to this passage. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples kidding me you as you are this day circumcised therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn for the lord your god is god of gods and lord of lords the great the mighty the awesome god who's not partial and takes no bribe he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing love the sojourner therefore for you were sojourners in the land of egypt you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. <laughs> Man, God is the treasure. The shield is the treasure. Not the behind kicking. Not the spoils of war. The shield Himself is the treasure. Think on that. Pray on that. And we're going to climb into that more in Easter. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> you get some treats on Wednesday nights. You kind of get a heads up of what's in store. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Who's that cat? And Abram said, Behold. That's like saying, Look here, God. <laughs> that's what that word means. Look. Behold. Look. You've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Like God didn't know that already. Look, God. Now, there's the potential to read this and think that Abram's being faithless here. But what he calls God tells us a lot about his heart. He refers to him in our translation here in the ESV as, O Lord God. Does anybody ever have a translation that say anything different there than O Lord God? Where's that? What translation? That's, that's a pretty good translation. I'm, I'm not a big NIV fan, but sometimes the NIV strokes went out of the park. And that, that's, that, that's, that's going over the fence. Because that's what it's saying. A real direct translation would be um, Master Lord Yahweh. But the funny thing is, is God hadn't really revealed His name yet here. 
Who does he reveal his name Yahweh to? Do you remember? It's part of the Exodus journey. Say, I'm going to reveal Yahweh to you, my name, my special, personal. I'm going to drop handles with you. You remember that illustration where the Corps cadet guy, you know, sir, my name's fish so-and-so. He dropped handles. God drops handles with humanity in that, in the nation of Israel. But right here, it's Yahweh. But this is kind of an early form of Yahweh because the, the first guy that says it is Abram. Does anybody know where the, the name Yahweh came from? hear that? Anybody know where the name Yahweh came from? That's just funny, the speakers, they do that when I hunt, when I lean over. The, the name Yahweh came from the name, from his reference to himself, I am. Yahweh is kind of a, a derivation of his I amness. So it's almost like he's saying, Master Lord, I amness. <laughs> He's like a made, made up a whole new name. If you're going to say, I am your shield, then I'm going to respond to your I amness. Master, Lord, I amness. Sounds to me like Abram sees God as all powerful and almighty. He's not lacking faith in asking this question or responding this way. He's expressing concern and confusion, like I was talking about. I got no child. I mean,. Yeah, I know it's got to work somehow. But his faith in God is reflected in what he calls God. Master, Lord, I am this. Now, <clears throat> he says, I continue childless. I just want to touch this word for a minute, continue. In Hebrew, that word continue means I'm walking, I'm going. I'm walking childless. I'm going childless. Now, the reason I want to stop at that for a minute is because that's just the way Abram thought. And I think the way Abram is thinking here about I'm walking, I'm going, I'm on a journey should be the way the Christians are thinking. I'm walking, I'm moving, I'm on a journey. Because we go everywhere at 70, 75, and we're there like that. Or we can get on the Internet and go anywhere in the world virtually. We don't know what it means to walk or to journey. But the Christian journey is just that, a walk and a journey. And he's saying, I'm walking childless. I'm going childless. It's the same words that he used over here in chapter 12, verse 1. I just want to show you the way Abram thinks. God says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred. That's the same word, go. And then in verse 4, so Abram went. It's the same word. He's walking everywhere he goes. He's moving. Look at verse uh, 5. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people said that they had acquired it at Haran, and they set out to go to the land of, Can- of Canaan. He's moving. Everywhere you see this guy, he's on the move. Verse 9, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Chapter 13, verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev. This guy is on the move. Even when he's sitting still, he's seeing himself journeying, and I'm journeying childless. Here, God. So something's got to happen. He says, behold to God, which I mentioned means, look God, no kids. And basically, his heir is actually one of his servants, and he's concerned about that. It wasn't uncommon for somebody to appoint one of their servants or even adopt a child or adopt a young man to be their heir. But if a child showed up, then that adoption was kind of null and void. I mean, they might still be a member of the family, but that the, the inheritance goes to the blood child or the blood heir. This guy's name is Eliezer, and I was just, it's just a little side note. I'm just imagining what Eliezer must have thought when Sarah, Sarah then Sarah, started getting kind of sick in the mornings. Uh-oh, <laughs> what's going on there, Sarah? And, and she starts showing, and he's like, man, I'm so bummed that he may have felt kind of like Esau felt when Joseph got the birthright. Or he may have felt kind of like Manasseh thought about Ephraim whenever his granddaddy went like this, did the divine switcheroo on him and blessed Ephraim over Manasseh. He's thinking, oh man, that's the bummer. Sarah's pregnant. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. There it is again. Pay attention to repeated words. 
Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Are you seeing a pattern there? It's not the same word in Hebrew, but it's another word that says, Look here. In fact, look up toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Okay, the first one that said look was Abram. Look, God, no kids. The second one that says look is who? No? You missed one. He says, behold. Who said behold? In verse 4, who is that? No, in verse 4. Huh? It's a narrator. Yeah. You got, you got to realize, I mean, you got to kind of sort out who's who in this story. Who's saying what? Abram said, look, God, no kids. Now the narrator's saying, look at this. <laughs> Isn't this funny that Abram's saying, look, no kids, and now I'm going to call your attention as the narrator to what God is about to say. He's saying, look here. The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look up toward heaven. So three people, really the, the three people in the story at this point, the narrator, God, and Abram are all looking around. Okay? God says what you see around you, childlessness, what you see around you, Eliezer going, man, I'm hooked up. Okay? What you see all around you, he says, look, or basically what you see around you will not determine your future, is what he's saying to Abram. Okay, while Sarah is barren, while you're old, while Eliezer is saying, I'm hooked up, these things will not determine your future. God's saying, I will determine what's in store for you. Your own son will be your heir. Now go outside, look up, see the stars. Remember who cast those, Abram? That's the one who's making this promise to you. Your offspring will be as numerous as those. Now, in verse 6 is our commentary. from Again, more commentary from the narrator. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay? The Hebrew word there for believed is actually better translated trusted. What does the NIV say? Believe? I think most translations say believe. But the Hebrew word there is more robust than that. It means trust. What do, what do y'all think the difference between belief and trust is? Think about it for a minute. You think there's a difference? Do y'all use that word trust very often? I believe we're going to eat at Taco Bell for lunch. Imagine the same sentence. I trust that we're going to eat at Taco Bell for lunch. <laughs> You're a little serious about Taco Bell. <laughs> That's trust. That's the difference. You can believe, you know, I believe I'm going to go to bed tonight. I trust that I will get some rest tonight. It's just a different thing. It's much more robust. I, I use this illustration often until I get a better one. You just have to learn to live with it. Some of you had not heard it. When I was at jump school years ago, it was 1987. I was a soft, it was between my sophomore and junior year at A&M. went to jump school at uh, Fort Benning. And um, before going to jump school, I believed that a parachute would get you from the plane to, a gra- to the ground. I mean, I saw the John Wayne movies, you know. <laughs> One thousand men will jump today, and they call them the Green Beret. You know what I'm talking about. Have you seen it? <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And, they're, man, they're piling out of those planes. I, yeah, I think those will work. That makes sense. But then the believing that they will work changes when you're actually standing in a plane and you've got a cord hooked up that you're passing to start an airborne and your knees are in the breeze. Because that, that's when it gets elevated to trust. <laughs> I just promise you that you're trusting as you look up at that canopy saying, I trust you. I trust in this canopy with everything in me. I, I, it's more than belief. It's trust. And that's what Abram is doing here. He is trusting in the Lord. And God counted it. God reckoned it. And God credited it to him as righteousness. We're going to talk about that at the end of the study tonight. God counted it. 
God reckoned it and God credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, now, that's the first part of the story. Okay, now for the sundown sleep, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord, there's another, I am. I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, the first I am was I am your shield. Now here is the next I am is I am the bringer outer. Capital B, capital O. That's what he does. Where else has he done that? Yes, okay, where else has he done that? Exactly. That's the big one. That's, that's almost a prophetic reference that you're going to see me as the ultimate big D deliverer, the big B, big O bringer outer. That's what I do. I deliver, and you'll see me as that. He's building on God's character, and it's going to come up again later in the Exodus. Verse 8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay, again, this sounds kind of like the tone of the first thing. Is this unbelief? And I'm going to say no because of the commentary in verse 6 that he counted it, he reckoned it, he credited it to him as righteousness because he believed, trusted in the Lord. I don't think this is disbelief. I don't think that he is not trusting the Lord here. I think that he's just trying to sort it out. Okay, let's look at verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds are just hard to cut in half. You know, I don't think we need to get like, ooh, this must be something mysterious going on with the birds, some sort of symbolism. It's hard to cut a bird in half. You ever try to do that? I mean, maybe a turkey. You know, but a regular bird pigeon is hard to do. Okay? God's going to give him a visual aid so that he will know that he can trust the Lord fully. Okay? Cut up some healthy grown animals. And here's the key. This word cut is important. And it's a word that you're going to see again in a minute. As you're cutting up these animals there, Abram, I'm about to cut something with you. You'll have to appreciate here. You'll just have to hang tight. For a moment, so you'll see what that is. Verse 12. As the sun's going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Okay, this deep sleep that falls on Abram. God's about to cut something with him. You'll find out what that is. This sleep of Abram is sort of like someone else that we studied recently on Sunday mornings. I say recently, it's been a year and a half now. Sort of a deep sleep that's really, really deep. I mean like decaying sort of sleep, like Lazarus. It's almost like a picture of him dying here. I mean, he's going, he's going into this deep sleep, and it's almost like Lazarus, almost like us being dead in our trespasses and sins. It's almost like us being called from death to life in the new covenant. It's a cool picture of that. What other deep sleeps can you think of? Now, this would go back to our Genesis study. Adam. Why did Adam have deep sleep? So Eve could be wrought from his side. And if Eve, as a bride, is going to be in some way a picture of maybe the new bride with the new Adam, then this picture of Abram falling asleep in some ways can be a picture of our Lord asleep in the tomb and the church being wrought from his side through the finished work of the cross. Some cool pictures here. If you're looking for Christ in the Old Testament, man, you will just find him. You'll find him. Where else have you seen great and dreadful darkness? Okay, Egypt, just just the slavery itself. Four hundred is actually precisely four hundred thirty years of slavery in Egypt. That's a darkness in and of itself. But then one of the plagues. It was so dark that what? It's a darkness that could be what? Felt. Man, that's some serious darkness. Man, and that's kind of a picture here. It's a foretaste of things that, are, that he's about to talk about. In verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, the Lord speaks into the darkness of Abram's deep sleep, and he says, essentially, let there be light with the substance of what he's just saying. 
He speaks into the darkness of Abram's deep sleep and essentially says, Lazarus, come forth. (laughs) That's kind of what he's saying. He said this people would be born through the labor pains of slavery and through the oppression of Egypt. But Abram, just like you just shooed those birds away from the sacrifice, I'm going to shoo Egypt away from you. After a time, I'm going to shoo them away from you and preserve my covenant people. In fact, you're going to leave with all their stuff. (laughs) That's the scandal of all, all of it. You're going to leave with all their possessions. In verse 15. As for the Lord, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, Abram, you're going to live a full life. Your offspring will return to this land I've promised you in the fourth generation. A generation is 110 years. That's about how long people live then, or a good, healthy generation. That's 440 years. That's about the same thing. 430 years of slavery, wandering in the desert. That's pretty close. Okay, we don't have to get surgical here. These guys did not think surgically. If you have a difficult time with the number 400 and you find out they were in slavery for 430 years, don't go, oh, man, they made a mistake. It's not a mistake in the Scripture. It's not even a transcription error. They did not think that way. And I'll give you proof that we don't think that way either. If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, man, um, how much? what did you pay taxes last year? You wouldn't say, well, I paid uh, $3,236.48. No, you'd say, man, I paid like $3,200 or something like that. Oh, will you lie? You lie. You didn't tell me about that 28 cents. Yeah, We don't think that way either. So to, you shouldn't impose that on the Scripture either. Okay. As for yourself, yeah, I already said that. You shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. It shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What, what in the world is that? What that is, I think that's kind of an Old Testament picture. Whenever Jesus found out that Lazarus was sick, you remember the story, some of y'all that went on that journey with us? What did he do? Did he hustle off to Bethany or where it was, Bethany? Did he hustle off there? He waited for him to die. <laughs> uh, it's not dark enough yet. The iniquity of the Amorites isn't complete. It's almost like I want to make sure that it's pitch dark, that it's a darkness that can be felt before I show up and I shine. It's almost what he's doing here. The Amorites aren't wicked enough for us to run them out yet. We're going to wait till it's really wicked. Until it's just like the light being spoken into darkness when my people come into this land. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these peaches. Pieces. Peaches. Where'd that come from? <laughs> now, this is the visual aid. Okay, God's just giving these visual aids in all of this interaction with Abram. Abram needs a visual aid, and he's giving it to him. And the visual aid here is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, I, 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 if, if, you, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, you're familiar with some of those ingredients. It seems like when God shows up, you see a couple things. You see smoke and you see fire. It happened at Sinai. How was the nation of Israel led across the desert and the wilderness? They were led by a column of what? Smoke and a pillar of fire. It's this picture of God leading them all around. And when God shows up, he reveals himself to Moses, there's fire and smoke. When God shows up, the Shekinah glory shows up, man, there's smoke. It just seems like this kind of characteristic of God. It also reminds me of Pentecost. What showed up at Pentecost? Fire. Flames. Look like tongues of fire. I, I look back there, I didn't see any smoke, but then again, the Holy Spirit came down. So maybe that's why there wasn't smoke, because he's now in us. He's now he's indwelling his people. Maybe it's appropriate there's an absence of it. Now, you may look at this tonight. I'm not going to take you there now because I want to hit a couple of considerations at the end of this chapter. But just write down Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. This is a picture that whenever you cut sacrifices in half, the person that passes between the sacrifices is actually saying, if I don't follow through on this promise, cut me in half like this sacrifice. So in essence, God passing through the cut pieces is saying, I'm bringing curses on myself if I don't follow through on this, Abram. That's the sort of God that we have. Does he have to do that to us? 
No. He doesn't owe us that. He's done that for his own fame, for his own glory, for his own renown, for being faithful and for being trustworthy. And he's going to follow through and make good on his promises. Man, to even his own peril, if should he not. Verse 18. That's uh, Jeremiah 34, 18, if you want to look at that. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Now, yeah, I, I'll, I'll say that for you. Let me finish reading. To, this off, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, to the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Like those critters were cut into. I told you to pay attention to that word. That's the same word that God uses for make a covenant. God's going to cut a covenant with Abram. That's just sweet. It's just appropriate. It's just so perfect that his visuals are so appropriate. Cut those guys in half because I'm about to cut covenant with you. It also helps you understand why circumcision makes sense as a sign of this covenant. It's a pretty severe cut. And that's the picture of what's going on here. I'm cutting a covenant with you. Okay? Now here's some theological implications of Genesis 15. Now, when I say theological implications, I hope you know I'm talking about dinner table implications. I'm not talking about we're going to get all academic now and horn rim glasses and not care about it and just kind of muse about it. I'm talking about this stuff that invades your dinner table. Okay, this is very practical. First of all, covenant. Between the Genesis 12 passage, those verses 1 through 3 that we looked at at the beginning of the night, and the covenant relationship that's developing between God and Abram right here, you're going to see it develop even further in chapter 17. Okay, it's like this covenant thing is developing over the course of these chapters. And in chapter 17, you're really going to see this picture, this charge, walk in my covenant, Abram. Walk in my ways. Okay, you're going to see that thing develop. That's just a heads up for you if you want to read ahead. Okay, here's the second thing. Justification. This is probably the best theological implication of this chapter to me. This is the picture of justification. This, this chapter is foundational to justification by faith. This chapter is kind of a foundational thing as to why we're not sitting around saying, man, you've got to be a good person so you can get saved. <laughs> it's because of this chapter. Martin Luther was in this Catholic church that basically said that's the way it worked. You had to earn your salvation. And Martin Luther is studying... Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's saying, hmm, the righteous shall live by faith. They're saying we've got to live by works. The righteous live by faith. I think I'm going to opt for faith. And this is a foundational chapter to that understanding. Because what happens here is Abram believes God. Really, remember we were like the word better, trust God. And it was what? It was reckoned to him as righteousness it was counted to him as righteousness it was credited to him credited (laughs) that's hard to say to him as righteousness that's justification by faith turn to romans chapter 4 hebrews 11 where we read earlier is an appropriate place to go to but here's just another passage to show you that is speaking specifically to this topic Listen to these words. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, i.e. age, barrenness, other people living in the land, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. God counts his belief, listen, as equivalent to meeting the moral demands of the law, which no one can do. 
Only one person, one human has ever met the demands of the law. And who's that person? Capital P, the God-man. Right. We can't meet those demands. So our only hope is to believe and trust in that God-man. And our belief in him will be credited to us, reckoned to us, counted toward us as righteousness. You understand how our salvation works? It's not by works. Otherwise, what? We might boast. That's right. Man, this is a foundational chapter. Let's, let's read on, verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, credited to him. What, what do the other versions say? Credited? Okay, what else? Does anybody say have reckoned? Reckoned? Is that King James or something? What is it? Oh, yeah, my favorite. It's reckoned to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for, insert your name. <laughs> this is why this is our story. This isn't some old tired ancient thing. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're saved by faith, not by works that men should boast. Man, that is the center of the heart of the gospel right there. Right there in Genesis chapter 15. It's the last little side note uh, on theological consideration. In some ways, kind of what we're seeing from Abram between the last chapter and this chapter is kind of a picture of the Christian walk. The Christian walk involves kicking kings and gods and stuff, rulers, out of our lives and giving God sway in those places that used to have rule by a king or a god of some sort. And um, overcoming insurmountable odds with God as our shield is ultimately how that's done. If you're looking at something in your life, you're like, man, I got this serious king, this serious God that's living in my life, and I can't get him out. Remember who fought Abram's battle? Old man, 100 years old. God says, I'm your shield. I'm the one that delivered you. That's the same God that we serve. And all the while, God gives his spirit as a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. Just like, just like God walked through those cut pieces, it's like he's walking through those cut pieces for us, guaranteeing our inheritance as we believe on Christ. Okay? Even our father Abraham shows all the while, too. It's funny that these little chapters are sandwiched in. These chapters of faithlessness are sandwiched into this story because they should be an encouragement to us because even our father Abraham shows that human faith is defective. And you're going to see it in the next chapter. Thankfully, his saving us is not dependent on our flawlessness or our performance or <laughs> we'd all be done. If Abram couldn't do it, then we can't. But we have a wonderful, faithful, merciful, gracious God who will make good on his promises, even if we can't. Do have any final thoughts? Two minutes over. Sorry. Not really sorry. It was worth it tonight. Anything? Any questions? Have I got that all down? I don't. Man, I don't. I go back and study that. You just go back and feast on that. I encourage you all as families to talk about it. Talk about it with your kids. Don't just see Sunday mornings as equipping for your, you know, equipping shepherds to lead families. Also see your Wednesday night times. I, my Wednesday nights feed my Sunday mornings and feed my devotional time with my family. Oh, man, it's just all connected. It's all part of it. Let me pray. Lord, we are so thankful that our salvation is not based on our performance or how we stack next to the law. Lord, we are thankful for the tutor that the law is because it points our hearts and our bends our knees to our Christ and makes us realize that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. Lord, we want to cast ourselves under the canopy of Christ want to beg for salvation at your mercy through the finished work of Christ and His work alone. Lord, we want to believe in Him and on Him with everything in us and whatever little places in our lives He has not invaded. We just pray that by grace and mercy that you'll fight those battles and be our shield. Thank you for this rich, beautiful chapter. Thank you for your rich, 
wonderful um, Holy Spirit that just reveals and leads and comforts and guides. Just pray that He will call to mind all these things that we've studied tonight. We love you desperately, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.